Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Vladislav Lilic, a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. In today's episode, I have the pleasure to host Dr. Adam Mestian, Associate Professor of History at Duke University. Dr. Mestian is a prolific author who has previously published a splendid monograph on the origins of Egyptian patriotism and numerous articles in the fields of cultural, legal, and political history of the Middle East and Eastern Mediterranean. In the next 45 or so minutes, we will be discussing his riveting new book, Modern Arab Kingship, Remaking the Ottoman Political Order in the Interwar Middle East, part of the Princeton University Press. Beautifully argued and entwining multiple intellectual interests, the work contends that post-Ottoman political orders in the wider Arab world resulted from a recycling of empire. These polities, the now forgotten kingdom of the Hejaz, Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Syria, Mestian insists, should be understood not in terms of colonies and nation states, but as subordinated sovereign local states, governing without sovereignty and dominated under new forms of Western oversight local Arab states of the 1920s and 1930s were composite legal political formations, seeking to adjust imperial Islam to a world without empire. Dr. Mestian, thank you for joining New Books Network and for taking the time to talk to me about your work. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. As is customary on the channel, I will start us off by asking how your previous intellectual trajectories had led you to write Modern Arab Kingship. How did you first become consumed with the question of how imperial regions transitioned out of the world of empires? And more specifically, you also have a background in the theory and history of art. How does your training in the arts, if at all, contribute to the analysis of recycled empire? Well, thank you so much. This is a huge question. so actually, uh, this, the idea of this book started when I, um, when I was writing my, my first book on uh, Egypt uh, of, in the 19th century. And when I, realized that that, when, when I realized that that book was about the making of a Muslim princely polity, which was subordinated to the Ottoman state. Um, so I became interested, what does it mean uh, that a polity is uh, autonomous in the 19th century, but at the same time not sovereign in the sense of what we mean today to be a sovereign nation state. What does it mean to have a, a Muslim ruler um, who is who has all kinds of expectations from below and from above? And um, what does it mean to uh, to to create a new uh, polity in terms of what we, we can call imperial constitutionalism? So when people are not free actually to decide how they want to live uh, necessarily, um, and uh, how what kind of vocabulary we can find to describe these types of uh, polities and situations. Um, so this is how the book started. Um, I was also very interested in, in this whole idea of um, 
of monarchical politics. Uh, not I'm I myself a very uh, anti-monarchical person, but uh, but I, I I could not but uh, realize that uh, at the beginning of the 20th century is full with uh, small uh, small kings and princes and pashas and uh, sultans. So I became interested how we can make sense of this uh, of this landscape of this monarchical landscape of the 20th century, of the early 20th century, which is very different from what we would know about uh, the standard narrative of nation states arising uh, and um, nationalism ruling, secular nationalism, and especially republican nationalism is ruling the political imagination of, of most peoples. Um, so, and this is how perhaps uh, my training in art theory uh, came in, uh, but also my other projects, uh, which do have some art history overlaps. For instance, I have a project on Cairo's urban history, uh, which I co-direct with Professor Mercedes Wallet uh, in Paris. And she's an um, architecture and art historian. And she was the one who, in one of her talks, in one of her earlier books, use the idea of uh, spoliation, which is a well-known art historical operation when older parts of a building, let's say, are reused and reinserted uh, uh, into, new, into new buildings, um, or not even in material terms, but also in stylistic terms, in virtual terms, an older style is reused in a new style. Uh, in a new style building and so on and so forth. Yeah, so so this is how uh, I became fascinated with this idea of, of reuse and spoliation and spolia in general. And I transferred this idea from, um, uh, from the field of arts history to uh, political theory. And I thought that, well, actually, this is what may explain this landscape of monarchs in the early 20th century that what we can see here is a kind of recycling of imperial institutions and imperial form of politics, uh, sometimes explicitly within a new empire, um, like the Egypt's transition into a British subordinated uh, monarchy in the early 20th century from an Ottoman context, or uh, without an empire, uh, let's say like the Kingdom of the Hejaz, uh, um, so, so this is how uh, the art theory uh, became important for me because I use certain art theory con concepts in the field of political theory and political history. Lovely. And the book is grounded in a methodology that you call global legal history. Yet, the term global here does not only reflect the work's broad spatial vista. How exactly do you wield global legal history? And do you think that your method might also find purchase in the study of other post-imperial regions the world over? Yes, so let me answer the, your second question first. So indeed, I am very shameless, and uh, the theory that I propose and the arguments that I propose, uh, I would say would be uh, valid also for the post-Habsburg uh, regions, um, perhaps also in some Asian and African situations of new state making as well. 
in which I do think that uh, this type of uh, recycling operation works at various points of time in decolonization or after the First World War uh, and perhaps until today in some cases. So, um, so I'm, I, I try to propose something which competes with the general uh, view that, let's say, Benedict Anderson uh, uh, proposed about nationalism. And I would say that, well, nationalism was very, very important, but we have this other operation, uh, this continuous recasting of empire, uh, which is equally or perhaps even more uh, defining uh, state-making in the 20th century. Now, back to your first question, um, um, which was about... Um, um, which was about exactly what exactly? I forget it. Global legal history as, as a methodology. Yeah, sorry, it's it's quite early here in Taipei. So uh, global legal history, yes. So that is a um, methodology that I, or a term that I uh, proposed because um, a, the new imperial history that I have been reflecting and using and I was inspired by uh, was not, um, how to say, was not enough uh, to handle some of the issues that uh, came out in the 1910s and 1920s when the political and the legal universe of the world is no, are, are no more defined purely by empires, but we have international bodies, uh, prominently the League of Nations, but others as well. And so uh, I was... Uh, struggling with how to deal with the scales of inquiry between the international level, the imperial level, the local and the regional one. Um, and um, so I proposed that uh, uh, perhaps in this way we can rethink the term global and just think about the perspective of, um, of the scholar, of myself and, and those who are the readers who, who, who navigate between these um, and actually my historical actors who navigate between these levels uh, with these scales of, uh, of politics. And, um, and so this is what I, I meant on, on global legal history. Uh, I must also say that I'm a little bit skeptical <laughs> about my own terms. So I, 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 should, have, uh, I should have indicated uh, a question mark. Uh, here, um, perhaps, but we can discuss that later. Mm -hmm. And the interpretive centerpiece of the book is the argument that the post-Ottoman Arab polities were neither nation-states nor colonial possessions, as you've hinted already. Uh, what were they then, and what was their place in this newly overhauled international order? Well, I mean, this is exactly the question of the historical actors. What what are these news? Uh, what are these new regions? What should they be? And what does it mean to create a new polity in a moment when uh, when uh, imperial acts of declaring uh, new regimes are no more morally acceptable, but at the same time they are under military occupation and uh, within almost uh, full power of the Allied uh, powers. So in such a situation when the previous uh, type 
of state making uh, start working uh, or cannot work because of legal and moral concerns. Um, now, now what what should? But at the same time, the very powerful actors, uh, France and Britain especially, but also Italy, uh, wanted to maintain and perpetuate their rule. Then what 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 kind of uh, politics these are? Uh, so um, yeah, so I I designed first this idea of uh, local to to characterize the constitutional uh, structure of uh, these new regimes, um, meaning that it's not only nationalism but also religion and importantly dynasty and especially federative ideas are are still circulating in in and and legally valid. Uh, in these new constitutional orders. And second, that uh, legally speaking, they are sovereign, but they are subordinated at the same time. I know it's a, it's a huge contradiction. Usually we don't think about sovereignty as, a, as an administrative concept, but usually we think about sovereignty as a, something of a moral and an absolute uh, term. But this is how, especially in the mandate and uh, military occupation, sovereignty functioned in the 1920s and 1930s in these new polities. Um, so I, I designed this, I use usually in the book, uh, subordinated sovereign governments or subordinated sovereign local states, um, um, uh, because it also helps to, um, to think about um, how these new polities were uh, created in some type of modular or associative uh, way. Um, so how federation was, was an important way to create either um, a new um, composite sovereign or how actually sovereign uh, polities were subordinated to a larger, to a larger power uh, within, a, within a federative structure. This is a wonderful segue into my following question. You argue that monarchy and federation were two overlapping modes of reorganizing the erstwhile imperial order. What was their function in the establishment of post-Ottoman legal political communities? And would you perhaps care to offer a couple of examples to our listeners? Yes. So, so in fact, the I think the important thing here is to think about world history uh, really not in a way uh, which is uh, the usual one, that is uh, from empires, after empires we see the emergence of nation-states. And this dualism, either empire or nation-state, defines uh, world history. I, I think this is not correct. Uh, actually, this is just simply not uh, describes what, what, what happened. Um, uh, we should rather think about how in the beginning of the 20th century, the, first, the central problem of, uh, of, of human communities was how to transform empires. And transforming empire was not, uh, was not necessarily through uh, creating nation, independent nation states, but through creating some type of federative or associative structure within the empire. Within the Ottoman context, this is very clear that we have several competing uh, federative ideas how to create autonomy within empire, um, both uh, for the Arabs and other uh, peoples 
whether it's um, ethno ethnic uh, based on an ethnic grouping or or, or ethno religious identities or um, or simply through monarchical um, uh, design that's, that is subordinated monarchs, so the autonomy is not given to a people but to a, to a monarch. Um, so, so there are these um, there are these federative ideas in the in the early twentieth century, uh, which would point to a, a, a new phase of empire, uh, a transformed, uh, more loser perhaps. The term they used at the time, decentralized, right? Decentralization was the key term uh, in Arabic la markaziya, um, or in Turkish gayri markaziya. And so on and so forth. So, 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 so there are these um, these ideas, um, and this is how we should start world history. And these ideas actually were still defining uh, most of the 1920s, uh, uh, despite the immense nationalist ideology. So, um, obviously, the um, uh, in 1918, when Damascus is occupied, for instance, by the uh, Hijazi uh, and the Allied power troops, uh, the idea of creating a, a Syrian kingdom is actually uh, the idea of a federative polity with a monarch, a monarchical federation um, in, in what is greater Syria, so what is today Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, uh, the state of Syria and Jordan mostly, uh, together perhaps with the Hijaz or without it, within a larger Arab loser political uh, empire, imperial formation. Um, uh, this idea, of course, could not be established because of the European uh, allied powers and the partitions that they, uh, the mandate system that they uh, that they enforced. But even within the mandate system, we can talk, we can see very clearly two, if you want, uh, monarchical feder or two feder federations. Uh, certainly, one is monarchical, one that is the so-called Sharifian solution. That is Iraq, uh, Jordan, and the Hejaz forming one um, connected chain of polities. Uh, all of them are ruled by the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, this, the, the, the Ashraf, um, and they are uh, composing in a way a, a blood-related monarchical federation, a genealogical empire, as I call it. And in the French mandate, uh, uh, which is properly speaking Lebanon and Syria, in the beginning we can also see a federation. This is the so-called um, what is it? Um, it is the so-called um, Federation des Etats Syriens um, uh, between 1921 and 1925, um, which is a federation of. of Five small uh, governments: uh, the, the state of the Alawis, the state of Aleppo, the state of Damascus, the state of the Jabal Druze, and the state of uh, Lebanon. Uh, sometimes Lebanon is out of this federation. Sometimes we in it. Uh, so, so there are, and, and this federation uh, is both an answer to the previous Ottoman visions of um, decentralized polities. Uh, and also a tool of the French mandate authorities to to divide, if you want, uh, the population. 
it's uh, it's a very interesting moment, uh, the early 1920s, when uh, we have all these federative uh, polities in this uh, in this region. So these are the concrete examples. Wonderful and, and so stimulating. I mean, in my own context, the context which I study modern Balkan history, uh, federation emerges as a potential vehicle of recycling or transforming the empire as early as the 1860s. Um, and this resonates so strongly with some of these earlier uh, aspects of shared Ottoman history, albeit peripheral, but still quite Ottoman. Um, my next question has to do with religion, though. You also show quite forcefully that religion played a constitutive role in the successive attempts to recast the repertoires of imperial rule across the region in the 1920s and into the 1930s. What were some of the ways in which Islam helped the grounding of local states in their constitutional orders? Ooh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question. Thank you. Uh, well, I must say it's not only Islam, but also Christianity. And uh, uh, of course, uh, of course, uh, 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 Zionism as well later. So religion is all around um, in the interwar period, um, just as much as, as nationalism. Um, and um, in, well, in, in my context, first of all, it is very clear that the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, led by the famous uh, Emir of Mecca, Sharif al-Hussein, uh, their plan is to create a, a new caliphate. Uh, the, the Sharif al-Hussein actually finally in 1924, uh, it's often forgotten, but he declares himself to be the new caliph after the Ottoman caliphate is gone. So the this new, if you want, genealogical empire that uh, they wanted to create uh, an empire of uh, led by the Ashraf as, as kings and emirs was to be a, a caliphate, a new caliphate in which uh, Al-Hussein would have been the caliph and was the caliph for a short time. Um, that is a use of religion uh, and they used immensely their, of course, potential and if you want uh, spiritual capital as um, descendants of the Prophet Muhammad in this time, both in Jordan, in the Hijaz, of course, the two sacred cities especially were important for them. And of course, in Iraq as well, that uh, was a an argument for uh, accepting uh, Sharif uh, Faisal, who was uh, the second son of uh, Al-Hussein and became the king of Iraq, although he never been in Iraq before that moment. That was, anyway, so that was one of the arguments uh, that um, that the post-Ottoman military man, and with, of course, with the active support of the British authorities made uh, that uh, these Sherry uh, Ashraf are descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, so they can be accepted both by the Shia and the Sunni populations in, in these regions. And they are Muslim monarchs, so they will be also good for the Christians and Jews and many other small religious groups. Um, one must say that this argument, so the use of religion uh, in state-making 
was, uh, of course, a, also a European, if you want, almost essentialist or racist tool to, uh, to create new states. Uh, famously, for instance, in Egypt, um, the British authorities thought that, well, the uh, Islam is so strong that they, they cannot uh, handle it directly, so they need a monarch who can talk to the ulama, and through the ulama, the monarch together can uh, create stability and use religion uh, to, 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 to oppose any kind of riots or revolts against uh, the continued British rule. So there was that use of religion as well. But the local actors themselves also uh, wanted to use, uh, wanted to keep um, Islam and Christianity and, and other um, uh, religions as part of um, constitutional orders, meaning um, that they wanted to uh, create laws uh, or constitutional texts in which religion is explicitly acknowledged in one way or another. Um, as a, as a legitimate part of uh, of the of 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 of, of life, um, and of course with these, especially for Muslims, the continuity of the Ottoman Sharia courts uh, remained uh, until the 1950s. Well, in some cases until today, uh, in these polities, um, and. Um, so it's in the mid-1920s when this becomes really explicit, and this is because the two main counterexamples are uh, Republican Turkey, Ataturk, who uh, of course completely abolishes or tries to completely abolish um, and the Sharia courts and uh, other um, religious institutions, and declares complete secular, uh, complete secular polity, and of course Soviet, the Soviet Union, which also declares its opposition to uh, include religion in, in, in political and legal life. So this is a moment in the mid-1920s when uh, many of these post-Ottoman Arab advocates and activists realize that um, these are bad examples. And so they explicitly start to advocate, uh, in some cases, uh, for instance, in Syria, for a monarchical solution, because they believe that monarchs will be the ones who who will keep uh, uh, the principles of Sharia, for instance, alive, and the Sharia courts alive, and so on and so forth. We are in the mid twenties again, hardly years later, and the question of the use of religion in state making seems to still be. Mm -hmm. It's wide open uh, in and beyond the region that, that you study. Do you see the book as pointing to some lessons, pitfalls, and advantages of the use of religion in, in, in statehood and statecraft? Uh, and are there any parallels that, that we are seeing with what was happening today? Yes, thank you. This is a beautifully posed question and uh, very timely. Yes. Um, I, I, I do think, for, I mean, this is a history book, so I'm not a political scientist and I'm not uh, uh, proposing solutions to, to problems in a, in a direct sense. But what I suggest is, first of all, to think about world history in the last hundred years, not only through uh, nationalism or the norms of democracy and the nation state, but also through uh, religion. And if we think about, indeed, in the last hundred years at large, 
how religion functioned in, in terms of uh, state making, then we can see that uh, it never disappeared. It was always with us. Uh, and even today, some of the nationalist regimes who declare themselves to be extreme nationalists, for instance, Viktor Orban in Hungary or uh, General Sisi in Egypt, uh, they are all using uh, elements of religious uh, propaganda or actually they create new constitutional regimes in which religion and religious principles are again part of the legal order. Um, uh, meaning that uh, very likely the, I mean, it's not very likely, we already noticed that uh, the, the project of secularism uh, failed if it ever, if it ever was a, uh, if it ever was uh, in, uh, in a winning position. Um, perhaps 1960s, 1970s uh, is, is the only time, 1950s to 1970s, the only time when we can talk about a, um, a secular uh, uh, constitutional political wave. Um, for American listeners, of course, um, of course, this shouldn't be um, a surprise since the American constitution is a very um, religion-friendly constitution, actually, right? So um, um, this is this is um, this is something that we have to deal with: uh, how to think about religion, indeed, as part of um, of constitutional orders and. And um, today we have these challenges from Afghanistan to Hamas uh, and many other uh, polities uh, which claim certain religious ideas, religious principles to be part of a political imagination and uh, not only political imagination, but of a legal constitutional order and uh, what to do with it. Um, and uh, our normative structure, our international normative structure, it appears cannot deal with these claims, uh, right? So the United Nations, for instance, at large, or political science is, um, uh, I mean, these, uh, these institutions and bodies of thought, they, they, they cannot deal with religion simply because they were not established. They, they are based on the norm of a secular nation state, and that's it. Changing gears just a bit, uh, the book also sheds light on local agency that made and remade post-imperial political orders. Would you perhaps offer a few examples of how ordinary people navigated complex legal landscapes inherited from a collapsed or a collapsing empire? For instance, I really enjoyed chapter six, where you detail how the bifurcated Ottoman legal system, encompassing both state and non-state or Islamic law, continued to frame social realities ground in greater Syria. Um, so this can also be construed as what was the fate of Sharia in this ge geopolitical reality? Uh, I, I didn't get the first half of your question because there was a can you repeat? His? Yes, I'm just wondering about a few examples of how ordinary people navigated this complex legal landscape uh, that was inherited from a collapsed or collapsing empire. Yes, yeah, so how ordinary people, uh, I mean, we have, of course, there is a legal chaos, first of all, in, uh, in, in the early, in the late 1910s and, and early 1920s. 
um, this is really a moment when uh, people don't know to whom they belong. There are multiple claims uh, on their belonging and there are multiple claims about whose legal system one is belonging to and according to whose law that uh, problems should be adjudicated. Um, well, what we can see in the, for instance, in the Sharia court for courts of Damascus is that, um, is that people very, very quickly, just immediately after the occupation, wanted to restart uh, litigations and went to the Sharia court very, very, uh, a lot really, uh, um, from dealing with the everyday things, especially female uh, litigants. Um, why? Because the Sharia court, of course, was the main, uh, in Ottoman times, was the main, uh, in modern Ottoman times, was the main place where to go with family law issues and especially about child care, uh, financial nafaka, uh, the child care maintenance issues. That is one of the main uh, tasks of the Qadi at this, this time uh, to register and educate um uh, child care uh, claims, and especially in a moment when uh, many males are in the army and they perhaps they died or they are uh, captured or certainly they are not around to help the family, uh, still in 1918-1919, uh, child care is a central problem, uh, a central everyday problem in these cities. So I. Uh, I actually am right now, I'm writing a, a little article separately analyzing uh, uh, this issue. Um, and these female litigants were very much attached to, to the Sharia court. They, they could not, I mean, at the time, actually, the so-called Nizamiya courts, which became later, uh, the Syrians started to call them simply hukuk, so legal courts, uh, uh, were not functioning yet. Uh, so... So, so, um, and anyway, so it's it's a complex problem, uh, but the Sharia courts um, uh, were the main uh, forums to to litigate these everyday concerns, and then when the um, slowly uh, the first Nizamiya courts continued in this new secular forms called Kukuk, and then the French established a new uh, a new uh, relatively new court system later on in the 1920s, 1930s, but it was still the recycled form of, uh, of the Ottoman courts. So, um, so there are this, the legal landscape, especially in this micro level, is, is, is very interesting. And of course, we have the large population movements, right? The forced uh, uh, displacements of peoples who suddenly became the subjects of new polities and have to learn even new languages for instance, uh, to, to, to understand the, the new government. Um, so, so the legal landscape is, is, is very interesting, but at the same time, I, I must also say that not everything is new. There are these continuities. Uh, people are, um, um, many are uh, attached to old legal forms, partly because their properties are, um, in these old legal forms, and they want uh, them to continue, and they want to adjudicate according to the old law. Um, also, people are taking advantage of this moment of illegal chaos. 
right? Uh, this is the moment when uh, property records are supposedly disappearing and then reappearing, and then new uh, the new cadaster is being made in many of these states, so a new survey of land records. So um, there is a large, giant reorganization of the property regime in many of these new states. But still, still, as I said, uh, based on very often until the Ottoman principles, for instance, in Syria and in Egypt, until a very, very long, many, many years, uh, still 19th century notions, legal notions define uh, litigations about, uh, of course, Al-Qaeda and, um, and, and many other uh, uh, um, uh, property forms. Uh, the Nizamiya law, um, sorry, the... The Nizamiya courts, which apply um, the Magella, the Ottoman uh, code, um, are are still there um, throughout the 1920s. Um, actually, as we know very well, the some parts of the Magella until today recognized in some of these states. So, uh, so this is a very long, very slow process uh, to to tra to transform the legal landscape. And um, and we have to be really uh, pay we have to pay attention to these um, to these forms. I think until until the 1950s at least. Thank you for the exhaustive response. Um, finally, you conclude with an interesting discussion of chronology. So, how does the age of recycling empire square with the conventional 20th century chronologies that dominate our Western scholarship? So when did the recycled empire end in the Middle East and are its legacies still shaping the geopolitics of the region? Uh, yeah, so I, I would rather think about, as I said, about uh, recycling empire as an operation which uh, happens in, in many situations. It's not, um, not necessarily a, a political age. Um, but we can, of course, define that the nine, that by the 1940s, um, especially 1948, when uh, Israel is born and the new Arab states are defeated, and uh, most of these new Arab states are, uh, although they are st still in some form of subordination to to France or Britain, but uh, more or less sovereign. Uh, so by that time, uh, this uh, operation ends, and certainly in the 1950s, uh, when there's a revolutionary wave, uh, the last vestiges of empire are swept away. Um, at least this would be a convenient uh, way to think about it. But of course, if we start, if we open our eyes to a, to a larger context, we can see that um, for instance, uh, Libya, a, an actually a post-Ottoman North African region, uh, when it becomes independent, uh, it, there, there is a Libyan kingdom which exists until the late 1960s. Um, so what we can see there is a perfect example of, um, of recycling empire and continuing much older um, institutions in a new form, of course, it's not the same, but it's a new form. Um, so, so for instance, in that case, uh, recycling empire uh, ends much, much later than than in other regions. 
Um, perhaps in some regions it, it never ends. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, so this this is this would be my 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 answer. I think for Eastern Europe is um, is an interesting case. It's really the the Soviet umbrella that ends. Uh, and paradoxically, real nation states are made in the Soviet umbrella. I think the Soviets are the only ones who actually take the nation state uh, very seriously. But one can argue that Eastern Europeans of today are still trying to grapple with uh, the rubble of empire. Um, look at places from from Kosovo and Moldova through Ukraine and Afghanistan. Uh, the imperial legacies are, are still very much there and ordinary people are forced to navigate them, I would say. Yeah, I mean, there is a, uh, the legacies are there, uh, but there is also a new type of, um, so, so there are new processes ongoing, which are, uh, we can call them imperial projects. They are not the old empires, but they are operating with the same type of logics uh, or similar logics um, than, the, than the old empires, um, just they call themselves in a different way. So um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, very much uh, every everywhere. Yeah. Last but not least, uh, where has this project taken you, Dr. Mastian? What are you currently working on? So I have um, I have a number of different uh, projects right now, but one is that I uh, I'm very interested in the economic uh, dimension, and I think new imperial history in general lacks the. Uh, the economic dimension. So one way, uh, what I'm doing is I, I go back to the 19th century, one project, and I try to understand uh, this uh, almost a, a microhistorical project of uh, of 19th century Egypt as a princely state. Uh, what did it mean in fiscal terms, and uh, to see the fiscal uh, administration of of Egypt uh, between the 1800s and the 1880s. So this is one project, and the other project I go to the up in the 20th century, in, and I look at uh, at the land survey uh, in uh, in the state of Syria between the 1920s and the 1950s, uh, and I look at uh, the land survey office at the cadaster uh, in a, in a very very detailed way, and uh, think about how, for instance, um, the federal structure of um, of this, uh, this Eta Syrian uh, uh, influenced uh, uh, the cadaster. What did it mean to create a federalized uh, land survey and so on and so forth? So, and I also have um, a distant project on uh, environmental history of Cairo. That's a different. Uh, that's a different uh, trajectory. And finally, actually, I, I have a plan in the future to write a history of Syria and Egypt, uh, the, 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 the story of the uh, United Arab Republic in the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s, as a federative project in the, in the without empire. I, for one, cannot wait to see what comes next out of your workshop. Uh, Dr. Mestian, it has been a real joy having you on the show. Thank you for coming on and Happy New Year. Thank you, brother. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you very much.